I'm licensed psychotherapist Greg Woodhill. Welcome to a Brave New Man podcast. On this show, we speak with both experts and non-experts in our goal of exploring all the ways that men are already getting it right, acknowledging all the ways that we're getting it wrong, and most importantly, learning how we can fix what needs to be fixed in order to have healthier, happier relationships and lives. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. Happy you're here. Today's episode is about a sometimes controversial and very misunderstood topic, and that's sex addiction. A lot of people think that sex addiction means that someone just loves having sex so much that they can't stop, or that the addict just uses that label as an excuse to get out of trouble, or that a sex addict is a bad, immoral person. Well, if someone is truly a sex addict, it is so much deeper and so much more real than any of those things. Sex addiction has become such a widely recognized problem that there are actually many 12-step groups that have developed over the past 30 years to help people who struggle with this addiction, just like how alcoholics have depended on AA for so many years. As you'll hear in our interview today with Dr. Robert Weiss, sex addiction isn't fun, and it's not funny. It's a severely misunderstood addiction that looks very similar to other chemical or process addictions, except that the person is using sex or any sexual obsession or behavior to escape reality instead of using other substances. In fact, as I've spent many years working with sex addicts in my therapy practice, I've noticed more and more how much this addiction has in common with all the other addictions. It is a deep and desperate need to detach from the present moment and soothe or numb or distract from the thoughts and feelings that are happening right now. I've said many times that the intention of addiction is positive. Now, let me be very clear about what I'm saying. The intention is, I want to feel better. I want to get out of this pain. I want to distract myself so that I can be happy or at least not be focusing on what is hurting me in this moment. That's the intention. The actual effect of addiction is far from positive. True addiction takes control of someone's life and it starts to hurt them way, way, way more than it helps them to the point where they eventually can't stop. So that you can properly understand what it might look like to be a sex addict, let me quickly run down the diagnostic criteria. Preoccupation. Failure to resist impulses. More time than originally planned on a specific activity over and over again. Trying to stop a behavior, but you can't. An inordinate amount of time planning, doing, or recovering from that behavior. Ignoring important things in your life. Continuation despite harmful consequences. And to me, that's addiction in a nutshell. There's also tolerance in sex addiction, which means that a person needs a higher high, more danger, something more visceral in order to get the same high that they used to get before. And then there's withdrawal. People who are sex addicts who stop their addictive behavior, they do experience mental, emotional, and even sometimes physical withdrawal. So sex addiction can include any number of behaviors, including pornography, paying for sex, sexual massage parlors, infidelity, anonymous sex, and many, many others. So let's be clear. If you love sex or any of the behaviors I just listed, that does not mean that you are a sex addict. Some people just love sex more than others, and those people are not who we're talking about today. 
Sex addiction is only when the repeated sexual experience of a person have become harmful to their life and they can't stop and they're hurting the people who love them. Today, we're lucky to be speaking with Dr. Robert Weiss. Rob is a PhD and a licensed social worker. He is an expert in the treatment of adult intimacy disorders and related addictions, most notably sex, porn, and relationship addictions, along with co-occurring drug and sex addiction. He is a clinical sexologist and a practicing psychotherapist, and he frequently serves as a subject matter expert for major media outlets. He's the author of many books, including Pro-Dependence, Out of the Doghouse, Sex Addiction 101, and Cruise Control. He also hosts a weekly live no-cost webinar with questions and answers on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. Let's get to our interview with Rob. Hi, Rob. Well, hi. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here with us. My today. pleasure, so Greg. I wanted to start by just talking about, I know we're talking about sex addiction here today. It is one of the most, if not the most, misunderstood addictions that exists. And what most people imagine sex addiction is, is that there's someone who just loves having intercourse so much that they can't stop. But we know that that's not necessarily what it is. Can you just tell us what is sex addiction? It's a big question. Yeah. There are really two components to what I consider to be a sex addict today. I think we have basically two different populations. Okay. So there's a population of men and women who've had early, what we call early complex trauma or attachment trauma, yeah. meaning that they grew up with emotional wounding in childhood that involved things like neglect or sexual abuse or violence or or parents who really whose needs exceeded their children's, so yes. they ended up kind of making their children into little husbands and wives. Yes, to take care of their needs instead of vice versa. All of that emptiness that comes out of those child those unmet childhood needs, and the pain that comes out of that unmet those unmet childhood needs, and the way that young children learn to tolerate unmet needs, mm -hmm. leads to addiction because children, you know, no four year old looks up and says, "Oh, I get it. Mom's an alcoholic, and Dad is overeating." Eating, and that's why they're not available to that's me. Right. That's right. A young child says, what's wrong with me that these people aren't loving me? And that sense of inadequacy and low self-esteem, what you might call shame-based self, yeah. is, is the undergirding or the foundation that addiction is built on. And then we have a second kind of addict yeah. that has really come about only in the last, I would say, 15 years or so. We're seeing these mostly young men, but some young women who do not necessarily appear to have had early complex trauma, but for whatever reasons, they, uh, and I'll just use this in quote, air quotes, ended up yes. looking at porn fairly consistently in either early adolescence, some earlier than that, and they get hooked on it. And what happens for them is it's such an incredibly, what we call a, a super stimulation, something such a high level of stimulation for a 14-year-old yeah. that for a lot of them, especially if they struggle with peer relationships or being on the team or picking a girl or boy to go out with, it's just easier to stay home and look at porn. That's right. And we call these folks, or they call themselves, porn addicts. Yes. And so we have a group of younger folks who seem to have been profoundly influenced by tech in a way that has left them with an addictive problem. Yeah. And then we have folks who have early childhood trauma who also seem to be have left with an addictive problem. So for those who have the early childhood trauma for that camp, why does it manifest in sex or sexual behaviors as opposed to some other type of addiction? Well, it, it manifests in sex or sexual behaviors in those people who have problems with this, but 
early childhood attachment problems and early abuse can also lead to depression, also lead to anxiety, also lead to alcohol and drug addictions. It really, the reason it lands in the sexual camp seems to be that those folks who end up like this used some form of sexual fantasy mm-hmm. or touching themselves, or maybe they were inappropriately touched. In other words, they were sexualized in some way at a young age, or they learned, maybe taught themselves that by touching myself as a four-year-old or a five-year-old, I'm gonna feel better. Yes, And it's true, children have sexual feelings. They're not the same as adult feelings, but those parts feel good to kids too. Yeah, And when a kid is suffering with emptiness and loneliness and depression, they will touch themselves as a way to just feel better and kind of disappear into the warmth and the fantasy of that pleasure. Yes, And that's a setup for someone to have an addictive problem with sex later in life. Well, sure. So. Unlike what I originally said, that this misunderstanding that it's somebody who just loves having sex so much, it's a way its a way they have learned to cope with life, to soothe, to medicate, to distract. The intention of addiction, I've said many times, the intention is positive. Not the outcome, but the intention. I want to feel better. So in the case of these people who, who self-identify as sex addiction, you've given three very specific criteria on this, and I want to repeat them here to you. One is preoccupation and obsession. I can't stop thinking about it. It's a loop and it's it's occupying my mind when I when I want to or should be concentrating on other things. And and by the way that could be porn, that could be an affair partner, uh, it could be prostitutes or sex workers, it could be any or multiple arenas in which that person lose themselves, loses themselves into sexual fantasy. Yes, okay, so yeah, their mind is thinking about any type of sexual behavior to, a, to an extent that it's crowding everything else that it's important in their life out, is that right? Well, what happens is, and this is purposeful, the person uses, not necessarily conscious, but pur- purposeful, if I'm looking to distract myself and I'm having a bad day and I'm having some money problems and I had a fight with the boss, I just notice myself really looking at butts and yeah. boobs and body parts and boy that feels good and I, I didn't seem to be horny yesterday but today I'm really horny and so the the sex addict will often assume that they are just aroused or just they're more situational they'll say oh this is a situation that turns me on or this is they don't really understand necessarily and this is what treatment is for that they're being triggered by deeper needs and feelings mm-hmm. and Greg I agree with you I think it's important to say that what a sex addict or any addict for that matter alcoholic drug addict all of us what we need when we're going out to use or sex or gamble or game is perfectly legitimate. Yeah. We want and need to feel comforted, soothed, yeah. regulated, important, special, valued, everything that everyone else wants. Yeah. But because of our broken and woundedness, we have a very narrow window through which we we allow ourselves to feel good. Yes. And generally, because of early experiences, it isn't through people with whom we are intimately involved and trusting. And that's what hurts our spouses is that we love them, we care about them, but we break their hearts over and over again because when we get overwhelmed Mm -hmm. with stressors that we can't tolerate, instead of turning to people to support us as healthy people do, drug addicts and alcoholics in general and addicts in general want to fix the problem of their own emotional pain by themselves. And human beings were not designed that way. We were designed to use social, community, and family interactions to help us heal. Important to think about in a very simple way. You know, I, I, it's funny, I, I've recently been studying a little bit of crisis theory. Addicts often talk about the idea of powerlessness or the inability to have control over this desire to drink, this desire to use, this desire to have sex with a stranger. Yeah. And what that is really about is they're they're kind of like in a crisis. Mm. Because someone in a crisis, if you think about somebody who's, you know, just had a car accident, they're they're thinking emotionally, they're reacting emotionally. Their their thinking brain is kind of retreated because they're freaking out. And when you're freaking out, you tend to be more emotional and 
people around you and support tends to bring you back into your logical thinking brain. Yes. For these people, however, they get into an emotional crisis inside of themselves and they don't even know it. Sure. They just feel horny or sexy or whatever it is and they want to move to the escape through sexual fantasy without even realizing what's underneath it and what's driving it. Yes, so if I hear you correctly, the emotional seat of the brain is dictating what they do, where the logical linear thinking part of the brain is really offline in those moments. Healthy people have a good balance between emotions and thought. You know, I feel like I want that second piece of cheesecake or that third. Yes. But my brain says, you know, you said you were going to try to lose some weight. Maybe you shouldn't have that other. So in healthy people, that balance between emotional desires and intellect works. Yeah. Now, I may have that second piece of cheesecake, and then I might use my brain to beat myself up about That's it later. Right, right. But Because I knew my brain says that wasn't the right thing to do, but I'm willing to take the risk. I might feel badly about it later. Yes. And you were aware of the, the decision you made. So the, the next two criteria. Yeah, Rob, I want to combine into one, really, which which to me is, is a flashing red light of saying, this sounds like addiction, which is a loss of control to be able to stop a behavior paired with negative consequences that are that are severely affecting someone's life. So it's ruining my life and I can't stop. To me, that is a bit of addiction in a nutshell. Well, I got a DUI and my answer to that DUI is not I shouldn't drink and drive. It's maybe I should drive a different car or down a different street or on a different time of day. Yes. And that would be the logical conclusion of someone who's an addict because their priority is not self-care. It's not connections to the people they love. It's not maintaining their career and future. Their priority is their relationship with that addictive substance or experience. And this is why spouses don't matter, work doesn't matter, kids don't matter, because what I have to protect if I'm an active addict is my relationship with that behavior or substance, because ultimately that's what keeps my head above water emotionally. Well, that leads me to ask, can we go through some of the myths and misconceptions about sex addiction that I think are really prominent and they're as well believed as they are false? The first one is that sex addiction is fun. Yeah, not so fun. I mean, you know, I often get asked that. You know, especially if I'm on an airplane. So, what do you do for a living? I work with sex addicts. Oh, I'd like to be one of those. You know, (laughs) that's the joke. I'd like to be a. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I'd have all the sex I wanted. And my response to that is, well, let's see. If you're not having enough fun in life, maybe you need to become an alcoholic, and then you can have a whole lot more fun drinking. Sure. And then they look at me like, hmm, maybe I wasn't thinking clearly. Right. But you see, if you're an addict, it doesn't matter whether the emotion is, you know, and Greg, you know this, this is one of the interesting things about addiction. Mm -hmm. I absolutely understand people will act out when they have a loss, they're angry, they're hurting, but people will also drink, use, gamble, and have sex when they get a promotion or have a baby. It isn't just negative emotional stressors stressors that drive someone to act addictively. It's It's really any emotional stressor that pulls on my need to connect with people. And if I prefer to connect with myself and avoid people, um, whether I'm really excited or really upset, I'm stuck with my own feelings with no place to resolve them. Yes, understood. Well, how about the myth that sex addiction is just an excuse for people who have bad behavior? Well, um, that's a good one. I think people who have bad behavior are just kind of jerks. <laughs> you know, I wrote a book called Out of the Doghouse, yeah. uh, a relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating. And I wrote it because I understand that men, in my experience, who are really good problem solvers Mm -hmm. when it comes to the issue of I've cheated on a woman and I want to solve her pain and our problem we don't seem to be very good at it Mm. Um, you know we tend to think that flowers and candy and I'm sorry's or it's been three months when are you going to get over it is a way to heal infidelity and unfortunately that's not how it works no 
so when I wrote out of the doghouse, I thought, well, how do I describe somebody who simply cheats? Yes. As opposed to someone who is sexually addicted or sexually compulsive. And the answer is, in my mind, I don't want to pathologize or paint some kind of uh, mental health negative picture on mm. someone who's cheated. So my thought about cheating is it's kind of immature. Like if I love someone and I've committed something to someone, and then I should keep them in mind. I should keep them in my mind as I go around the world. Even when I'm separated from them, I should have some sense of how my life and my decisions are going to affect them, even when they're not with me. But addicts tend to be able to put people out of mind and completely focus on their desire to act out. And in that case, I mean, it's they, certainly not that they intend to hurt the people around them, but their inability to stop what they're doing certainly does. Yes. So there's a maturity to <laughs> that's lacking in those moments. Well, if I'm a cheater the- um, and I go home and my spouse finds out that, you know, I say, well, I was just getting a lap dance in Vegas. And my spouse says, I, I don't think you love me. Mm. I'm going to certainly get a quick take on the difference between how I think about that lap dance and how my spouse thinks about it. Yes. And then I've got to come up with, well, but babe, it was just this. It was five minutes. It meant nothing to me. But this woman's looking at me like I've ruined our lives forever. And that is the enormity of the challenge for those people who compartmentalize problem behavior. Yes. And then all of a sudden they run into someone who sees life clearly, not as an addict, but as it is. And they say, what the heck are you been doing? Yes. Which is when in in what you were saying earlier, what were you thinking? And they I weren't think, thinking you know, like at all, exactly. right? They're feeling. Yeah, they were and, in their feelings. And in fact, it's interesting, you know this, Greg, that oftentimes an addict, any addict, will go act out with their particular addiction. And later on, they'll say, I felt guilty afterwards. Yes. I felt shameful oh, yeah. afterwards. Yeah. I hated myself afterwards. Yeah. Well, guess what's happened? Their emotional state has calmed down, and now they've started thinking. Yeah. And now they realize, you know, if I'd been in my thinking mind, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't want to have done this. I wouldn't have wanted to be in this situation. But now it's too late. Yes. And so in reflecting on it, I just hate myself. Yes, and I hate myself and I feel guilty about what I did is a perfect excuse to then go do it again because I don't want to sit with shame and guilt. Well, I don't know if it's so much of a conscious excuse, but I will say that addicts tend to uh, cycle in their behaviors because if you think about it, if the as you were saying, if your method to making yourself feel better is to drink or use or sex or gamble, well then if your gambling or sexing or using is just making your life worse and making mm-hmm. you feel worse, well that's what makes addiction a cycle because yes. the worse I feel, the more I use, the more I use, the worse I feel. That's right. No matter behavior or drug. Yep. Well, how about people who say that sex addiction is related to fetishes? So, uh, I like to be tickled. I like to have group sex. I like leather. I like S&M. I like to put on the... the Greg, I never knew. (laughs) We're finding out quite a lot about me, aren't we? But that that, if you do something other than missionary style, committed, uh, monogamous sex, you are a sex addict. Yeah, I think that that... The term for that kind of thinking is more sex negativity yeah. or cultural conservatism around sex, meaning for whatever reason, I think sex should be this, yeah. and anyone who's not doing that is perverted yes. or yeah. weird or some kind of addict. And certainly there are people who are into leather, into lace, into panties, like a little bit of slap and tickle, BDSM, whatever. And it's perfectly fine for them to engage in a consensual relationship with that behavior and someone else as long as everyone agrees. Yeah. But the problem is, if I don't like that I'm attracted to a man, if I don't like that I'm into kink, if I don't want to be that guy who uh, gets turned on by panties, you know, I might say, wow, that must be an addiction because I don't like it, or my wife doesn't like it, or my girlfriend doesn't like it, my boyfriend. So since nobody likes it, 
maybe it's an addiction because I can't stop. It, Rob, is that true with, for other people looking in as well? Uh, I don't approve if I'm if I have a certain set of beliefs and I don't approve of your lifestyle, whoever you are. Then I'm going to say you're a sex addict because you're doing things that I don't think are right. Do well, you think that happens? I think back to alcoholism in the 40s and 50s. You know, we called alcoholics bums, sure, losers. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not worthwhile. They didn't love their families. You know, we've always had moral judgment when it comes to addiction. Yeah, the the areas where it seems to be deeply lingering is in behavioral addictions like gambling or spending or or sexual behavior because i mean lord knows i don't know why you keep drinking but i think i have some idea about alcoholism and something you put in your body the alcoholism Mm -hmm. then you get addicted to it and Mm -hmm. you crave the drug but how could you be addicted to gambling how could you be addicted to gaming how could you be addicted to sex because i can say no to that so surely you can right and that's, of course, the cultural challenge is helping non-addicts understand that addicts, at least in the beginning of their process, don't have choice. Your answer to this question might be exactly what you just said, or maybe not. What is one thing that a non-addict needs to know about what it's like to be a sex addict that they just don't understand? Well, I think to any partner or family member or loved one, I would say the most important thing to understand is that it's not about you. Mm. You know, I have heard, I've heard far too many spouses. And of course, an active addict will reinforce this with a wife or a husband. If, In other words, if I want to validate my sexual acting outside of my marriage yeah. and I want or relationship and I want to feel good about it and I want to not hate myself, yeah. then I have to justify it. And one of the things that sex and love addicts in particular will do is blame their partners. Yes. Well, if she were thinner, well, if he made more money, well, if we just spent more time together, well, if the kids weren't in the way. And all of that is a way to deflect the reality of what they're doing. But partners hear that and they start to take that in. And it's not just sex addicts. You know, if you were thinner, I wouldn't drink. If you didn't yell at me, I wouldn't. I can't tell you how much time I spend online with people live saying, hey, no matter what you do, yell at him or her, nag him or her, leave him or her. It is always the addict's decision to use or would do whatever they do. It is never a partner's influence. It is always that person's decision. Sure. Why is it so much harder for the partner of a sex addict when compared to the partner of a drug addict or an alcoholic? Or is it? Well, no, it is definitely a harder road for the partner of a sex addict unless they are a saint because this isn't someone going out and wrecking the car and drinking and losing a job. This is someone who took your marital or relationship vows and probably never intended to keep them in the first place, and now they've not kept them for a very long time, and how could that not be personal? I mean, it's a lot easier to not personalize it if your partner has cancer or your partner has diabetes. It's a lot easier to see, wow, that happened to us. We've been victimized by this disease, and together we're gonna fight through it. But if your spouse is doing things that you think they could choose to not do, but they're doing them anyway, and they hurt you personally, and they hurt your relationship, it's very hard to love that person and see them as broken. I mean, I have a lot of empathy for the partners of men and women who cheat, because you know, you've been victimized, you've been harmed, and it's really, the betrayal is profound. But I have more empathy for the partners of sex addicts because you guys not only have someone who's cheated on you, but you're also presented with an impossible situation, which is, you know, usually when someone we love is hurting, we feel bad for them, we feel sorry for them, and we are asked to care for them and help them get better. But in this case, it's a personal betrayal that you've slept with 300 people or my ex-friend from college or, you know, all that time. on. And so it's very hard for me to be empathic for you and your brokenness, while at the same time, I feel personally betrayed and violated by your behavior if I'm looking at porn four hours a day and I'm not looking at you 
and we love each other and you haven't had sex since three months yeah you're gonna look at me like well i guess i'm not attractive to you anymore i mean that's that's just natural so if somebody's listening right now and wondering how do i find out if i'm a sex addict or if my partner's a sex addict where do they go well, there's lots of books on the topic, and uh, I've written a few of them. Yes. Um, I, I always recommend people to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. So get Sex Addiction 101 or one of the many books out there on sex addiction and read it. They're all fairly basic. Yes. See if you identify. Yes. Go to a 12-step meeting for sex addiction and see if the people there and their stories reflect your experience. Uh, go online and get help. I, I'm running right now, not personally, but uh, I have a team of people running about 15 groups yeah. on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. Drop in there anytime and sit with a bunch of other women who've been cheated on or men who've been cheated on. Or, you know, I think the most important thing for all of us to do when we're in pain is to find people who are like-minded to support us. So for the people who've been betrayed, it's really helpful to find someone else who's also been betrayed. Sure. Then you don't feel like it's about so much about you, but it's more about, oh, people who are married to us who do these things. Yeah. And if you're an addict, the, the most important thing you can do is find other addicts because if they are working toward healing, it will give you hope. And hope is one of the things I find sex addicts in particular lose quickly. Healing is such a difficult road, especially if you're uninformed and don't have support. And, and a sex addict will say, oh, I've tried so many times and I'm not able to stop and maybe I'm just a hopeless pervert or something. And to, part of the challenge is raising their hope that they might actually be able to change. So the most important thing a person can do is to learn. And aside from the drop-in groups and other resources, I imagine on sexandrelationshiphealing.com you have quizzes or self-assessments they can take. We have we have the, the 20 questions for if you're a sex addict, 20 questions for if you're a porn addict, you know, all of those things. I mean, those are not guarantees, but they're pretty good guides. Most people don't f- say yes to too many of those questions. So. Sure, right. And if they identify as a sex addict or a partner of a sex addict, as you said, the most important thing they could do is go find a community of people just like them that can surround them and support them. A lot of people don't know there are not only are 12-step groups for sex addicts, but also for partners of sex addicts. And I want to add to this, Greg, that all of this is available online. I mean, there are 12-step meetings. I know a lot of people who have two kids and don't have a babysitter, and they just want to learn more, but they can't leave their house to get to a meeting or they're too ashamed. They can find a 12-step meeting or support group, ours or others, online for free. And I think this is part of the gift of the internet today, is the ability to connect with other people who have similar issues in community without having to leave my house. God, I think that's so great. And I have to acknowledge, I think it takes a ton of courage for someone to go sit in a meeting because I know I've asked a lot of clients, are you willing to go and sit in a Sex Addicts Anonymous meeting and basically share everything about your sex life with strangers? And the reason that I continue to ask them to do that is because so many men come back from their first time of going saying that for the first time they feel less ashamed of themselves because they sat in a room with people that they actually liked and looked up to who had the same exact problems as them and it ends up really helping them because suddenly there's an us it's relational it's the exact opposite of what you were describing acting out can be which is so solo and 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 depending on oneself and rob i just have one last question which is why is sex addiction so misunderstood there's a camp out there that says that there's literally no such thing as sex addiction so what is it about sex addiction that has people so torn 
Do you want the short version, Greg, or the long version for this question? (laughs) So I I think there's a couple of reasons why sex addiction is so difficult to accept. Um, It's kind of like eating disorders. People don't like to use the word addiction with food, but there are folks who have very addictive relationships with food. So when you have a naturally occurring function, something that's part of being alive, like eating or sexuality, that's, that's connected to our health as people, we really don't want to paint a dark picture of a naturally occurring function. There's nothing wrong with eating. Some of us eat a lot occasionally. You should see me at Thanksgiving. So does that mean I have a problem? No. But if my health is being affected, if my well-being is being affected, and I'm still overeating or compulsive eating, then I do have a problem. It's not about judging how I eat or what I eat. It's the effect of the eating on my life. So if I'm gaining 100 pounds in a year, and i am got blood pressure problems and cholesterol problems, and my kids aren't going to see me live till 50, Mm -hmm. it's probably an issue about my compulsive eating, and I need to pay attention. It's very hard for people to... we really don't want to pathologize what are normally considered healthy behaviors. You have to understand in the realm of sexual health, there have been many, many incorrect opinions coming from therapists for many years. Absolutely. In the 1960s and before, we said homosexuality was a disease and people should either go to jail or prison. Uh, later on, we said kink and fetishes, you know, BDSM and, and transgenderism and all of that is sick and those people are dirty and bad and they need to go to institution or prison. So the sexual health community has spent decades fighting back against those messages saying, you know what, anything that anyone wants to do that is consensual and doesn't cause someone else harm and happens in the privacy of your bedroom is okay. And through that message of acceptance and non-judgment around sexual behavior, we have really gotten to the point where we're much more open culturally and socially to homosexuality, to transgenderism, to gender identity, and all those issues that young people have so much to say about right now. So on the other hand, this effort that the sexual health community made in a very deep way, and I'm so grateful um, that we have so many more activities and behaviors and relationships that are acceptable and we don't judge anymore. But in that path, I believe the sexual health people made a mistake. They started to exclude people. Now it isn't, yes, it is absolutely healthy and acceptable, homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, kink, fetishism, consensual behavior among two people, enjoy it, have a great time. But what they didn't consider and still refuse to consider is behaviors that people engage in consensually, but they may have unconscious reasons driving them like trauma or abuse. In other words, people sometimes engage in consensual behavior that's harmful to them and they just tolerate it. I, I, a lot of sex workers that I work with are, are engaging in consensual sex, but it re, for some of them, it is mirroring trauma, mirroring abuse, and if they really sat down and talked about it, it doesn't really advance their health or their goals for life. Right, right. So the question is not, is every sexual behavior okay as long as it's consensual between two people and they both agree to it? But there's a caveat to that, which is, is this behavior allowing this person's life to thrive and function? And then if it's not, does that mean the behavior is a problem or the, the person's relationship with the, in other words, is, is being attracted to men the problem? Or is it they don't want to be attracted to men? Or what is the problem? And for some people, not a large percentage, sexual behavior is compulsive and addictive related to early trauma and conditioned responses to early exposure to porn. And even though that is consensual, it doesn't necessarily mean, mean that the person feels good about it or it's improving their life or it's leading them toward their goals, values, and beliefs. Yes. So in other words, there are people who will 
take on the moniker or the label of sex addict because they don't like their orientation or they don't like kink or they don't like their gender orientation and they want to get rid of it. And so they will call it sex addiction as a way of trying to disown something that is a part of them. Yes. And I know what you want for people, Rob, is that they have healthy, integrated, intimate sex lives. So if people are listening to you, Rob, they want to know more about you. They want to know how to find you, read more of your books. Where do they find you? Well, I'm not hard to find. Um, So you can go to Sex and Relationship Healing if you want to find one of our drop-in groups. I run treatment programs in Los Angeles, and we're expanding around the country. So you can go to seekingintegrity.com for that. But I also have a podcast, not to compete in any way, but as additive. And we were comparing podcasts and decided we both like each other's podcasts. I have a podcast called Sex, Love, and Addiction, and I've been fortunate enough to have a whole bunch of fairly famous and uh, authors and therapists in the family health, intimacy health, sexual health community who've come out and done podcasts with me, and I'm yeah. incredibly grateful for their participation. Well, Rob, thanks again. It was so great to My hear My pleasure, and Greg, keep them coming, because this is an important thing you're doing, and I hope everybody's listening. Thank you. Okay, so what now? First of all, let me say for the hundredth time in this episode that if you love sex or you love things associated with sex or you and your partner love sex, it doesn't mean you're a sex addict. I hope that all of us have fun, creative, interesting, intimate, enjoyable sex lives, and there's no reason to pathologize your relationship with sex. If your sex behavior and the repetition of it is hurting you or others and you cannot stop, then it's probably time, as Rob said, to go online and take a self-assessment. Happily, his website, sexandrelationshiphealing.com, gosh, it has just about everything you would want if you're wondering if you have this addiction or wondering what to do about this addiction. So go there, take an assessment. You can also take assessments on a lot of other websites, and some of those are the actual 12-step groups. And also do some reading. Sex Addiction 101, Out of the Shadows, and many other books that are very easy to obtain can help you read about what sex addiction is and what it isn't and help you diagnose if that's happening in your life or in the life of somebody that you love. If you see that sex addiction is a problem for you, there are so many different resources. There are many 12-step groups, and let me just list a few of them right now. Sex Addicts Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, Sexual Compulsive Anonymous, and there are more. And as Rob said, happily, there are also 12-step groups and support groups for partners of sex addicts. Two of those 12-step groups are S-Anon and COSA, C-O-S-A. These are places where addicts and partners of addicts can come together, be with one another, and experience the resilience of being connected and being intimate with people as a way to heal what's happening underneath the surface. So if you believe that you are an addict or that your partner is an addict, go online and research and look at some of these websites of the 12-step groups and go sit in a meeting. And as I always say on this show, be compassionate, first of all, to yourself. Secondly, if you know someone who is struggling with sex addiction, take a moment to think about how difficult that road might be for them and how courageous the journey is to move toward healing in that area because we all believe that who we are as sexual beings is the core of who we are. So we're so afraid for other people to see into that. 
So drop a huge amount of love on yourself or other people who find themselves relating to this material and let's all move toward healing so that we can be the best, most intimate, most authentic and truest version of ourselves. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening to A Brave New Man Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to A Brave New Man on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And come follow us on Instagram at A Brave New Man Pod. That's A Brave New Man P-O-D for updates on the show and our daily words of wisdom. See you next time.